This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest today, Clarissa Lim, a researcher and an urbanist. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hey, hi. Thanks for coming, Clarissa. Thanks for coming. Um, So I think we are going to sort of like follow up on our listeners' suggestion Mm. this week. Dr. Gake from uh, Nottingham has actually suggested that we look into the issue of the Hong Kong protest movement. Something that's very current, right? Mm -hmm. Mm. Something that's very current. And Clarissa has sort of just recently moved from Hong Kong to Malaysia, to Kuala Lumpur. And she'll be sort of like helping us sort of explain what the current situation is like there. Yeah, sure. I must preface this that I'm not not a politician or nor <laughs> do I know much about politics, but I'm just someone who has lived there almost all my life. Okay, great. Maybe if uh, to start off from the very, very beginning, I mean, why do you think it's, uh, you know, why are people so concerned with uh, what's happening on the ground? Mm. And why do you think people are so sort of like concerned with the anti-extradition bill that really mm. sparked off this recent spate of protests? Yeah, sure. So maybe I can preface and talk about it in relation to the handover. So Mm -hmm. in 1997, Hong Kong was handed over from Britain back to China with its 50-year kind of one country, two systems principle. So it has its own law, it has its own kind of education systems, it has its own er identity as well. So basically the extradition law is... So it was proposed in, in the government and it was just talking about a system where, for example, if someone were to do a, commit a crime overseas mm-hmm. and they have to come be extradited back to Hong Kong, they would undergo China, the China judicial system rather than the Hong Kong judicial system because mm-hmm. Hong Kong doesn't have many extradition um, agreements with many different countries. So that's why people think it's unfair, knowing that we have our own judicial system already in place. And... Um, yeah, so it's quite controversial in that sense. Okay. Why do you think this has become a rallying sort of like call for the students? Is, mm. uh, is it a symptom of a larger kind of issue, a larger sense of resentment mm. against a systemic form of injustice? Uh, where, so, where do you think this is coming from? So I think it's coming from the fact that Hong Kong has its own judicial system and right. within this 50 years, before 2046, when we handed over back to China, we're supposed to be governing our own city. Autonomy is a largely spoken ideology within the city of Hong Kong. So this extradition law kind of presumes that China has stamp okay. or stance on the city premises and its judicial system. So that's why it seems to be the impetus of many further conflicts that arises from it. So maybe I can go into the five stipulations that people are talking about. Okay. So yeah. there are not just one. It so it's not just one like about the extradition. to five different demands. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay. So one would be the full withdrawal of the extradition bill from the legislative process, which uh, Carrie Lam has talked about suspending it and then withdrawing it eventually in October. But uh, we can talk about more about how people have reacted to that. Another one is the retraction of the characterization of the protests as riots. Mm. Um, the third one would be release and exoneration of arrested protesters. Fourth would be establishment of an independent commission of inquiry into the police behavior. Fifth would be universal suffrage for the Legislative Council, which relates back to the Umbrella Movement and what happened in 2014. 
And ultimately, there's the final request, which is not part of the five, but has been added on, is the resignation of Carrie Lam. Mm, okay. So much of this discussion is centered around this question of a political and not some form of uh, demanding for some form of political and autonomy that was mm. promised, right? Mm. Uh, but I also understand that with the handover, this uh, one country, two system sort of like promise of this sort of like the implementation of this one country, two system policy also has a sell-by date of mm. about 50 years. Yes, at 2046. Uh, so 2046, yes. is that right? 2047 would 2047, be the day it's one. Okay. Prob- properly going to be handed over. Right. Uh, given that there is this sort of like expiry date to it, how much of that factors into the discussion or the imagination of the student protests? Mm. Or is, does that not like matter at all? There's something more urgent about the present moment that's driving students out to the street? Well, I think that within this 50 years, somehow Hong Kong has to think about its identity or its imagination of what the territory might be. Mm-hmm. And that has always been contested, especially it's because it's a city-state. And after handover from 97, a lot of the students have been... I guess the students have, at this age, currently the students who are protesting, I guess they are born around that time. So they don't really know what Hong Kong is like before, and they only know this state, which is only 50 years. Mm-hmm. But after 2047, when it's officially handed over they will still be alive. So there is a kind of like a timer that's running out, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, they have to sort out whatever their identity is, kind of enable it and promote it or whatever it may be within within their city and their ownership of the city. And then somehow also agree with being handed over back to China. So it's not much time. It doesn't sound like an easy decision to exactly. make too, right? Yep. Uh, What's the sentiment like on the ground? From my observation, it's been one month since I moved to KL. So I haven't seen what happened in October 1st, mm-hmm. which was this week. I've been observing it from above. I've been back end, but not really the front part of the protest. They call it like a front line or back line or mid line. That's how they judge themselves. Mm. Usually during the daytime, it's fine. It's mm. very... Um, but this has also affected the economy on some levels, am I right? Sure. Uh, I was in Hong Kong also a month ago, and it does feel like it's a much quieter city compared to mm. the kind of like vibrancy that you would expect of Hong Kong in mm. the past. I don't know if that's also upsetting a lot of like business leaders and uh, those with commercial stake in uh, the city. Yeah, it's upsetting a lot of not only business leaders, but also families. Mm-hmm. And for sure, people wouldn't want to go out at night, right? Right. And, uh, of course, it has affected the tourism ties with China, mainland China. The tourism seems to be getting less and less, and people don't feel like they are welcome inside the city anymore. Mm. So in that sense, yeah, people mm. have slowed down. Things have been much more quieter in the street if you go out at night. And um, during the day, it's, it seems to be still working, trying its hardest to work. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong is very good at getting back on its feet. Mm. For example, like after natural disasters, even the typhoon, the day after, we still try to go to work. Right. right? Yeah. Right. That's how the city kind of runs. Mm. Is there a generational gap between yeah. uh, the students or the mm. younger generation and the older generation with regard to how they perceive the protests? Mm. I think there is. But I can't say for sure because mm-hmm. you don't really know. You only hear stories. 
I am, of course, coming from an outsider perspective. I'm not born there. But then what I hear from my friends, yeah, it's very difficult at home, especially when discussing these issues with their parents. Ultimately, a lot of people just want peace. Mm. Yeah, they just want the city to go back to normal. Okay. And I've heard both sides of the story. And it's quite dichotomous because with the rise of social media, mm. people are only served with things that they want to see, of course, mm. with the algorithm and all that that you we all know about. <laughs> yeah. So the narrative of, for example, the pro-democracy camp would continue and it will persist within their phones and then people will just like keep thinking that it's a very terrible thing and that they should go out and fight for it. Of course, on the other side, they would see that, why are they fighting for this? Why, why is this happening to our city? Mm. You know, they're, they're really concerned about it. They think that it shouldn't be, shouldn't be happening, of course. Mm. So... Yeah, within families, parents would always discuss with their kids and then some kids would hide the fact that they're going to the protests. But um, yeah, it's very hard to say that there's a demographic or how do you say there's a divide in in, um, generation, Mm -hmm. but maybe class also has something to do with it. Okay, so a class divide would... uh uh, how would you sort of like at least describe this class divide? Can you sort of walk us through specificity? Sure. So maybe like one of the contested lands in Hong Kong would be like the land, the land prices. Mm -hmm. And people think that because it's largely to do with the ownership of the city and it's also somehow part of what's happening right now with the protests. So the people who are lower class feel that their rights to the city have been taken away from them. Because they can no longer sort of afford. Yeah, it's not affordable. They're just not happy with what's happening. So... Those are also part of the underlying sentiments, I believe. And so, yeah, they would... So, in that sense, that's why the people of the lower... Income bracket. Yeah, yeah, lower income bracket tend to also be part of this movement. Mm -hmm. And the people who are in power, i.e. the people who have money, (laughs) for Mm -hmm. example. Some resent, some don't, but then it's very hard to say as well. Mm -hmm. Because it's also very unclear. And it's very hard to find the demographic information as well. So... Mm. I don't want to say that right. exactly it's quite it's as simplistic as that. But, but what I found sort of like really interesting yeah. is that during my time there, there were also sort of pockets of like the protest movement that was actually quite supportive of, say, there was flying like either the American flag or the mm. British flag mm. as if... Um, Symbolism. As if that those were the sort of icons mm. that would have represented some form of resistance against this big state called China, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah and to sort of like reuse a colonial... A symbol, a symbol of sort of like colonial rule or sort yeah. of like imperial might. Uh, it's a bit sort of like strange for people of at least my generation who did went through a period of sort of like anti-colonial sort of, or at least aware of this history of anti-colonial struggle. Yes. Uh, but so how are they sort of like seeing this, these codes that they're sort of like deploying? Mm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that they are deployed yeah. and they're also still used. Right. I don't really... Um, yeah, their codes and their symbols, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And not only the, like flags, such as like the American flag and the British colonial flag, and then the Hong Kong colonial flag, which was given by Britain to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So there are like several kinds of symbols. Mm-hmm. There's also like symbols, symbolism coming from artists. Are they reinvesting it with a different set of meanings at this point in time? Oh, right. Yeah, uh, what yeah do you, I what think so. 
I can't say for sure. Okay. Because everyone uses it in their own ideologies, of course. Mm -hmm. But you can see this coming up on different social media platforms, like on Telegram or Instagram or Facebook, if you're part of those groups, mm -hmm. for sure. But there's been, uh, like, for example, the movement of using memes, mm. like Pepe the Frog has been, been, has been used as a symbol of liberty and resistance, for example. There's also this artist who uses the post-it notes, which is a Lenin wall, which is one of the forms of resistance that have been overtaking the public spaces in the city. What's a Lenin wall? So, yes, a Lenin wall is kind of started from 2014 in the Occupy protests, which are these post-it notes. People think it's like a it's instant installation where they write on these post-it notes their demands for whatever they demand for within mm -hmm. the protests and their wishes and their hopes and dreams. Um, after John Lennon, of course, of his song Imagine. Oh, okay. And then oh they the would... Lennon wall. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> so. But it's Lennon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Lennon. Okay, okay, Lennon, Lennon wall. Okay, okay. John Lennon. Yeah, yeah. So they would post it all over public spaces. So this artist called Ba Diu Chao uses all these posters and the bright colors that they have and made like a Lennon wall flag. And that's being promoted by different artists like Ho Sisi and um, yeah. Cool. And that's another symbol that's come up, which does not associate with like an existing country, for example. Mm -hmm. so, so these are sort of like more much more uplifting kind of like symbols exactly. compared to say what media would normally sort of like cover, which is mm. principally directed at all the episodes of violence mm. that has sort of like flare up yes. in the protests, right? Mm. Uh -huh. So yeah, the media houses, for example. Uh, yeah, all the media houses which are in Hong Kong right now, they also run a whenever any spark of violence seems to happen or any sign of protest, they would start having like a live live feed that's on YouTube or on their on Instagram or on their YouTube on their social media channels or on their pages and they will follow it constantly. Wow. observing it. So, for example, Now TV, there would be one channel on the television, which is our basically our astro, <laughs> would have one with commentary and one without commentary. So you mm. can kind of see exactly what's happening. Everyone's being accounted for, which is another trend which is very different from, like, crises in the past, I would say. Mm. Mm, okay. So um, we have to take a break first. You're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin, and Simon Soon. And this week, we're joined by Clarissa Lim, and she has kindly helped us make sense of the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest for the week, Clarissa Lim. And we're discussing the recent and still ongoing protests yes, in Hong Kong. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. So one of the things that I think I'm quite curious to know is how has the Hong Kong community sort of like matured? Considering that I think they've had the umbrella movement and now this recent protest, this recent and ongoing protest happening. So is there some form of maturity in terms of how they mobilize or mm -hmm. how they congregate and how mm -hmm. they try to go about it? Well, the umbrella movement was a political, well, let me describe it first. It was a political mm -hmm. movement that emerged in the Hong Kong democracy protest of 2014, which is... Um, basically about universal suffrage, about democracy, about choosing our own leader of the city, our chief executive. So the difference between then and now, I'd say that the Umbrella Movement was basically we had leaders. We had Joshua Wong, mm -hmm. we had Agnes Chow, we had all these people who are leading the protest and we had figureheads to kind of turn to. 
Whereas now, um, the protest seems to be leaderless. It's mm-hmm. anonymous. So, so Joshua Wong would not play a seminal role or an iconic role in mm-hmm. this protest as opposed to the Umbrella Movement. Well, he's always going to be icon in Hong Kong democracy and all the fight for democracy that has happened. But uh, I don't think he, he can write about it, he can talk about it, but he's not the one organizing anything, I think. Mm. Well, for sure, he will definitely have says. So his words would be taken, not taken lightly. Mm. So um, I guess in that sense, it's different. In the Umbrella Movement, when I was there, I was yeah still there, it's more like occupation of space, mm-hmm. right? It's only one place. It's this highway that's all the way from like central, all the, which is the business district of Hong Kong, all the way to the government headquarters, which is like an admiralty, to Wan Chai, which when you walk it, it's quite peaceful. It's quite, other mm-hmm. than the violent protests that happened in the beginning, it's a very peaceful kind of occupation of space that's singular. So you can walk on this kind of highway for like 10-15 minutes without disruption, which is people gathering, they're just eating their dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just like sitting there. People do their homework there. There's artists who pop up and come up. And Lennon Wall was also created as well, okay. as I've talked about before. Also at Tamar. Tamar Park is where the government headquarters is located. Um, so you're saying that it's a lot more decentralized on s- some level? Uh, um, are you talking about the uh, current one? The current yeah. protest, right? The current one, uh, they use the term like be water, right? Be water. Be water. What does that mean? Can so you? be water is, I guess, it's popularized by Bruce Lee, <laughs> mm, okay. which is uh, a term indicating that you'd be fluid, you'd be flexible, okay. you come in, you're ephemeral, mm-hmm. you come in and occupy certain spaces and then leave. Right. So that's the... So the water metaphor is a beautiful metaphor, of course, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, organizing a mass without a leader uh, or without someone with that charisma mm. to exude leadership sort mm. of like skill is challenging, right? A lot of things can happen uh, and the organizational work itself is not always the easiest sort of thing to do. For sure. Uh, so how, 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 does it, how is it managed today mm. as compared to 2014? Are there different strategies that are being sort of adopted? Are mm. there different ways in which people come together or pass information or share knowledge? Well... I guess the rise of social media, it's ever more imminent, right? Like you, you see it all around you. It demands your attention. So Telegram has been the platform that they use. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about it is that they have polls. So you can like you can put polls and pin it on the top of your page. You can also manage who enters and who leaves the group and who you kind of block away from the group. And why is Telegram chosen as the ideal? Yeah, because end of end end to end encryption technology is also used. So that's why it seems to be more anonymous. You can also delete everything instantly and also create a new group instantly and then yeah, you can have more, how do you say, organized discussions. And the group sizes are also infinite, I think. Or it's a very large number, a few thousands. Several thousands are, can be in these groups. Wow. Also with Instagram, it's also being used to promote like all the different creative, graphical depictions of what's mm-hmm. happening and how to organize. So there's one that if you are following all like the people in my age group, maybe like 20s, maybe teenagers all the way up to the 30s then you would see things like oh the hong kongers schedule for this week so it would say things like what's happening but also it's always coded mm-hmm. so words that they would use maybe it's like picnic at tamar park okay. because there's like a lot of green grass there so people would like to have picnic anyway right. or they would go window shopping so recently there's a there's the rise of different creative outlets such as like you know 
creating their own song for the protest. And that's been organized in shopping malls. Mm-hmm. And people would say window shopping to in- indicate that we would all congregate at that specific shopping mall, for example. And it does seem like in order to sort of galvanize the student to at least support the cause, um, those who are doing the organizing work have also become a lot more playful in the mm. way they convey messages. Mm. And sometimes it allows for a very sort of like creative mass participatory yes. kind of like action, right? Mm. That seems almost Sisyphean on some <laughs> level. I'm thinking specifically about the use of the laser beam, mm. uh, which is tied to a specific event. Yes. Uh, can you walk us through why, why uh, you know, at certain sort of like points in the protest, mm. uh, there will be a group of people who would undertake a collective decision to shine like laser beams at like, you know, some of the important buildings in Hong mm. Kong. Okay, so I think it was why they started using laser beams is because of the arrest of someone who had someone important within the protest, who protest movement, who had like lots of laser beams in his backpack, and the police deemed it as harmful weapons. Okay, and then people started feeling angry about that decision to arrest him. Therefore, they started. Reusing or subversing, kind of like an act of subversion, congregating at Team Zajai, which is basically one of the centers of Hong Kong. Hong Kong is super dense as a city. So, coming from my background, it's very interesting to see how, where they choose to congregate and why they choose uh-huh. to congregate there. So, they started shining it on the Space Museum, which is like a half dome, huge white tiled building where if you shine something colored, it's definitely visible from afar all the way from central which so is across con- the harbor how many congregated on the first i actually, uh, don't know okay. but i'm sure it was a lot of people wow. it's almost like public art mm-hmm. the way that they do their acts of gathering and uh, dissipation okay yeah mm. Interesting. Um, so there are other forms as well, uh-huh. other than like the laser beams, which uh, there's also like the Hong Kong way, which is an attempt of a human chain following the MTR, which is a public system transportation line, which is kind of mimicking the Baltic way, which was, which happened like ages ago, <laughs> right, right. some sort of historical event mm. which happened in the Baltics. I guess it's about the Iron Curtain, right? Right, right. Um, So the Hong Kong Way was created by about 200, they say estimated 200,000 people. Not really sure whether it's that many people. Um, Following the MTR and holding hands, and they would create this kind of temporary chain. Of course, they're going to block roads. So when roads are being used, they would break off, allow the Mm. cars to go through, and then like block roads again. Mm. And um, follow ranging from east to west of Hong Kong Island and Kowloon, and also north to south, all the way to Lion Rock. And um, Lion Rock is always used as a symbol as well. Mm. I mean, all these acts of creative resistance Mm. or disobedience on some level, Mm. it feels sort of like very alive and present, also only because they're also very sort of playful. Mm. But ultimately, I think what they sort of also touch on is this idea that there's an emerging Hong Kong identity that's in formation, right? Mm. And I think the last example that you gave uh, about the human way meeting at the Lion Rock as Mm. a symbol of Hong Kong identity sounds like a very potent entry point for us to think more deeply about this issue. I wonder if you can sort of like talk more about 
What Lion is this Hong Kong identity? The Hong Kong identity. That is in formation and why Lion Rock has a crucial sort of like place in the Hong Kong imagination. Lion Rock is used as a symbol for many Cantonese pop songs. And also... Um, so it had a pop song origin. Yeah, I think oh, so. Wow. Or at least in movie and film. Mm-hmm. It's being, it's always, things are always being shot there and things are always being talked about there. And... It's also very visible from many different points of the city. It separates new territories and Kowloon. New territories in history has been owned, mostly owned by Chinese, especially during colonial rule. And then when Britain decided to have its 99-year lease, they draw the boundary at Boundary Street, which is just before Lion Rock. Mm. So it's visible from very many places of the city. And... People go up there to shine light, especially in the past almost 100 and almost 120 days now, the protest has been going on. To shine light there, and then you can see it from Central, you can see it from from New Territories, you can see it from Kowloon. So it's accessible. Uh, so even from Central, which is on Hong Kong Island itself, I you think are you able can see to it. Sort of see it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I would be able to see it, at least. And also, there's like this rock face where people would hang long, like Ghana's calligraphy, okay. or like saying the revolution to Hong Kong, or or all these different sayings that they have talked about. Liberate Hong Kong, the revolution of our time, which has been like the saying that they've been using on Lion Rock as well. So that's one way of because it's visible from everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you can like access there. It's not a hard climb as well. Okay. Was this identity information really kickstarted by, you know, the 1980s sort of decision to hand over Hong Kong? 1997. 19, uh, so the handover happened in 1997. But, yeah, but uh, the decision 80, happened earlier. Yeah, the yeah. decision happened Margaret in the Thatcher. 80s, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, did it have that as an impetus or uh, when did it search for Hong, Hong Kong identity really sort of begin? Mm, well... That's a very difficult question. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that that search has always been happening. It's ongoing. Okay. It's ongoing. And probably shifting. So. It's always shifting. But um, we can see efforts of people trying to catalog and archive all of these um, all of these efforts that people have been doing, talking about their standpoints and their statements about what's happening right now in Hong Kong. So um, I guess I can talk about the archival efforts. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people have been addressing it. For example, I've, for my own research project, which I do, um, called Inventory and Stocklist, I talked to this guy called Samuel Lai, who has been collecting like Cha Chan Tang, which is Cantonese tea house, um, signages and all these identity of Hong Kong and all these neon lights that have been slowly taken down. So this is infrastructure that you see within the city that has kind of shaped our vision or understanding of what Hong Kong would look like and these are slowly being taken away due to regulation of course. and but now throughout the protest he has been also collecting all the flyers mm-hmm. all the zines that have come up all the like the protest material and um, yeah he's been doing it informally mm-hmm. and things like that has start to shape or start to begin to we begin to understand because this kind of archival process is not really seen mm-hmm. in the city of Hong Kong of course it has been done from like artistic standpoints has been done from higher institutions such mm-hmm. as like a Hong Kong art museum and whatnot but not things that we see in our everyday okay. so right now our everyday is what's happening right now right mm-hmm. in the protests and I understand that the Chinese University of Hong Kong is mm-hmm. also initiating an archival project yes, yes, now how yes. is this different from say Samuel uh, Lai someone like Samuel Lai um, I guess Samuel Lai he goes onto the street 
<laughs> he goes and collects right. it. He also, people informally talk to him mm-hmm. as well and go up to him and be like, oh, what are you doing? And then he, he spreads his message kind of from a bottom-up rather than a top-down institutional methodology. Another kind of independent body is like Zine Coop, you know, who has been collecting different ways that people can initiate these forms of resistance or how we can like defend themselves from larger bodies like the police or different forms of how they have asserted their stance on the city like the police so they have these little manuals talking about like oh this is how you can get rid of indigo dye because right now they have water cannons which shoot indigo dye to identify protesters or people who just happen to be there mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they have like these little manuals that they've been collecting and asking people to come draw and as well as distributing and I think that these instructional kind of little books are also a form of like how people have gathered, how people have begun to make a sense of community or people have begun to find their own little interesting creativity methodologies of resistance. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And be flexible, like be water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very flexible, yeah. So Clarissa, I was wondering if you could sort of talk more about the counter mass media efforts. Mm. I know that the internet and social media has been very crucial in helping self-organizational work. Nevertheless, I think to get the message out on the street to a constituency that would not always be sort of like social media literate. Mm. I'm sure there's also that segment of the population that needs to be sort of like considered and that needs to be sort of like brought into the fold. How are they sort of like going about this? Yeah. So there's this collective called Imagine Hong Kong who identify as anonymous. Uh, Recently, they have self-organized themselves found graphic designers to kind of create these posters and crowdsourced all these all this funding from the internet to put this message out in the international uh, community so out through very traditional journalistic kind of platforms so for example like different newspapers of different countries mostly mm-hmm. in the UK I've seen like Japanese I've seen Korean mm-hmm. I've seen um, ones in Germany as well and they're this funding is a lot of money. I'm not exactly sure about the exact amount. You can find it probably online. So they organized it to coincide with the G20 summit that happened to get the message out there. And I believe it was in England, right? Like mm-hmm. in London, right? So they um, crowdfunded a lot of money, people translating, and then they put it all in these newspapers. Mm-hmm. So I found it very interesting that they got so much money to to put, like, for example, advertisement pages, but talking about what's happening in Hong Kong so that people of different demographics can access this information and can understand what's happening through the lens of the five stipulations that the protesters have been um, talking about. Right. Yeah. You know, on one level, it's such a decentralized and mm-hmm. diffuse sort of movement. But on the level, on the <laughs> another level, it hits so much close to home. It mm-hmm. hits so very sort of like close to home, mm. right? Uh, and I think especially even amongst the Chinese diaspora, yes. uh, even in families like mine on our Facebook group, in our Facebook mm. chat, there would be sort of like conflict or disagreements as to where you're supposed to sort of like stand on this issue. I wonder if being a Malaysian who has so <laughs> grown up in Hong Kong, yes. uh, how, is, how are you sort of coping with this issue with well, your family? Um, it's very difficult. Well, ultimately, we're just all worried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we hope that there would be a solution, but I don't know if I see one right now. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we just want peace to come back. And it's yeah very scary because you see it every day. Mm-hmm. I work at the university before this, so 
And the university is always a platform where people can talk about their ideas. You're confronted with these like different banners, different landing walls that crop up immediately once I like arrive at uni. <laughs> mm. So um, yeah, you you see it every day. It's always in your face. So I'm just very worried, but I just hope mm. something will come up. Right. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything that we can learn from the Hong Kong protest mm. movement? I think the creativity is really fascinating, mm-hmm. especially with my own personal research. I find it really interesting that there are different archival efforts that are happening, trying to say, oh, this is what happened in 2019 in Hong Kong, right? Talk about what the different sides and the different kind of creative efforts that they've come up in different forms of resistance. I think they're really fascinating, especially in the world of social media and how highly connected we are today and also how they identify the public spaces. Mm -hmm. So shopping malls in Hong Kong are like privately owned public spaces, but Mm. they still use them. So how they kind of take over the city is really interesting. Especially KL is so big. (laughs) Hong Kong is so dense. Mm. To find a sense of community is really difficult in in all these like places, for example, in KL. So I think that's another thing that we can learn. Right. How to identify with your community? How do you create your communities? Mm. Now there are different forms of, you know, gatherings. And with the recent development, mm. there is also a new legislation that has banned protesters from actually masking. Yeah, so that's in the talks in, right now. In, in, on the streets, right? Exactly. Is that right? Uh, how is that going to sort of like impact the movement? Is it going to sort of like force them to become more public and become more accountable? Or is it... Is it going to sort of like stop students from actually stepping up into the limelight? Yeah. Or is that going to build a stronger and more visible community? Where do you sense that that legislation is going to you know, have an impact on the mm. movement? So recently, Carrie Lam at actually 3pm 3, 3 today on the 4th of October, um, on the 4th of October, I had this uh, press conference discussing about the potential of how that can work. I don't know all the details yet because mm-hmm. it just basically just happened. But I think that everyone still would still want to go out. I don't think it's going to stop a lot of people. But the lack of anonymity would be quite interesting to see how it develops. Because so far it has been quite nebulous. You don't really know what's going on, who is part of it, right? Mm-hmm. So anonymity has been a big part of the protest. So mm. with it being gone away or taken away through force, through this new law, or what? I don't really know what kind of law it's called. I think it's like an emergency law. Okay. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to see how the mode shifts. Mm, dark, dark days ahead. Mm. But hopefully, like at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully. All right. Um, so we have to end the conversation, unfortunately. Um, so uh, you just heard from Simon Soon and also Clarissa Lim. We've been discussing the Hong Kong protest. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. You can also follow us on Facebook. Look for BFM Night School there. Don't forget to also download the BFM app which you can get on the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Thanks once again, Clarissa Lim and Thank Simon. You. Thank you. I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.